Will you start by telling us about Grey Havens and the work that you do there? Sure. Um, our organization is called Grey Havens Philosophy. We're a P4C organization, letter P number four, letter C, and it stands for Philosophy for Children and Communities. Um, it's a movement. It started as P4C Philosophy for Children, and it's been around. Matthew Lippman started it, and I want to say 1969. And then Anne Margaret Sharp, a woman named Anne Margaret Sharp, was very much his partner, and it trained thousands of teachers and really, and took the movement international. And now P4C is taught in 60 countries. And it's a method of teaching philosophy to children as young as three, all the way through adults, by doing philosophy with them. So we're not reading Kant with three-year-olds. We're actually engaging in philosophical thinking with them. What does that look like with a three-year-old? Oh, it's it's, and you have not lived until you have done philosophy with a three-year-old. It is wonderful because just think about the questions that three-year-olds are asking. It's, it's all about why. And um, they really get that asking questions is a way to figure out the, their world. And so it, it's usually picture books. Sometimes we use games. Um, but picture book philosophy is a wonderful thing to do. So we'll start with the picture book. And throughout the reading, so it's not just we read the picture book and then we generate questions, but the way that we do it is throughout reading the book, we're asking them questions and we're encouraging them to ask questions. I mean, an example is um, there's this wonderful book called Hey Little Aunt, and it's about a boy who has some peer pressure going on trying to decide whether or not he should step on an ant. And the book ends with his foot poised over the ant. So picture books really take children seriously, whether it's intentional or not, as philosophers, and that they don't, usually the good ones don't provide easy answers, and this one doesn't provide an answer. And, and then we just talk. It should be philosophically suggestive, and it should be slightly challenging in the sense that you have to really think about it and, and and by philosophically suggestive, I mean that um, a good novel, a, a good TV show, a good movie, a good song is going to have implicit philosophical themes and that, that art is inherently moral and that it has, it takes a moral stance um, and a philosophical stance. Um, if it's good, then it's implicit and not explicit. It's not hitting you over the head with it. And so um, we just look at what we as facilitators can tease out of the text, whatever it is, and then we read or watch or play or listen to um, the text or the stimulus with our participants. And the questions that they come up with are usually nothing to do with the questions that we came up with. It's just, it's really humbling. We still prepare because we like to think through the, the philosophical stance that we think, or the stances that we think that the piece is taking. But it is amazing, amazing how much, how rich these texts can be. And it's just, we, we never know. We never know where the conversation's going to go. Is there a value, do you think, between using stuff that is cultural, that's already kind of part of our world, Yes, because it trains you. It's practice. Reading a text is practice for reading the world. And, and you know, Harry Potter, for example, 
there's a, a, a really credible study that shows that reading the Harry Potter books as, you know, as problematic as they can be and of their time as they are, that reading um, Harry Potter books actually increases empathy and tolerance. So it's wonderful to, to experience a work of art and the empathy and the emotion that that raises in you and the imagination because philosophy is not just about ratiocination. It's not just about formal logic. Um, reason, being a reasonable person, also involves emotion and empathy, but disciplined emotion and disciplined empathy. And that's how we become aware of ourselves as, as moral people. We, um, we develop our sense of personhood in relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. And so um, P for C is all about developing a community of inquiry. I did not make up that term. <laughs> That's a traditional term in P4C. So it's about your relationship with the characters and your empathy for the characters in the text, but also your relationship with each other and your empathy for and your caring, your the, the sense of caring for each other. Um, we use the four C's, which is that a good philosophy discussion should be um, critical. So you're giving, you're committed to giving good reasons for what you think and using good processes um, and and open your open to having your mind changed it should be collaborative and that we do our best thinking with each other and we're working with each other to maybe not find a higher truth but ideally find bigger and bigger questions um, and it should be creative in that you're willing to do thought experiments you're willing to combine ideas in different ways um, that, that you haven't before. You're willing to use your imagination to think about new possibilities. And most important, it should be caring mm-hmm. and that you genuinely are interested in what other people are saying. And you're genuinely interested in giving other people space to work out their ideas. And you're interested in helping each other to do the best quality thinking that you can do. And that takes time to happen, and it's really important to be very humble about that and not think, oh, we've done it. We're a community of inquiry now, because it's really, it's really a sort of endless process. It's um, you know, a horizon that you're always moving towards, but you never quite reach. But it's a, it's a beautiful process, really. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to emphasize that um, while there are so many values, social, emotional, cognitive, academic, um, P4C is preparation for dem- participation in democracy, there's so many va- um, benefits to doing philosophy, but philosophy is just part of what makes us human. It's just, it has a, an intrinsic value. It's a beautiful thing to do for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And it's the most beautiful when we do it together. I there's so much in there that I am <laughs> <I'm> trying <laughs> I to come back. To, no, you didn't <laughs> ramble. You just had so many beautiful things to say. But I part of that thing about being a community of inquiry, it reminds me of Parker Palmer talks a lot about putting the subject of what you're teaching at the center. Mm. And then that becomes the thing that everybody plays with and explores with. And so it's not about the teacher. It's about the thing that you're working on. And I think about that a lot when I'm doing theology with kids. Like we're mm, going to, yeah. it's, this is, a, you know, this is about 
discovering who God is and learning about Jesus. And that's the thing at the center. And so there's a playfulness to that. But I also know that the thing about that that can make people uneasy is that you don't arrive at an answer. So the role of the teacher is not to say, this is the correct interpretation. And so, because I get asked this question, I'm just going to ask it to you. (laughs) Um, How do you reconcile that then? If there are things that um, maybe a moral question does come up, Mm -hmm. and there's a piece to that where you as a facilitator are uneasy with a direction that the discussion took or maybe a position that somebody else had. Um, And I want to ask that generally, like with all ages, but also especially then if you're working with kids or youth. Mm -hmm. Um, In what place is it worth stepping in? Does does that make sense? Yes, that's a great question. And, And another sort of motto in the P4C community that's been around since the beginning or almost the beginning is that a teacher or a facilitator should be pedagogically strong but philosophically self-effacing. So we step in to help kids um, with developing their critical thinking skills, their creativity, to make sure that they are genuinely being caring, that everybody's getting a chance to talk, that our thoughts, our ideas are no more important than anyone else's in this community. We're members of co-equal members of this community. And I'm actually always working on how much I talk Mm. and um, just really trying to step back and think, what am I trying to accomplish here? Am I trying to get my idea across or am I trying is it necessary? Am I helping this community become a more cohesive and a more caring community? Am I helping with the quality of thinking that's going on here, or am I being a, a teacher? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's Pete Frisi has so many roots in um, the philosophy of John Dewey, um, but also in um, I'm going to butcher his name, but um, Paolo Freire. Freire, um, who wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Education for Critical Consciousness. And he talks about the um, this teacher-learner, learner-teacher model, where we're all both, and we learn from each other. It can be a little frustrating to people that we don't arrive at an answer. We try to leave everyone with a bigger question to take away, and until they discover that that's really rewarding, that that's what they're going to be doing for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting. Um, There are a lot of questioning strategies that we teach our facilitators, including our own, um, which we think of the model as concentric circles. So you start with one thing that's interesting to the kids. So um, an example that we use in our facilitator training is we were having a discussion on Doctor Who, which is a British science fiction series that's been around since 1963. And if you don't know Doctor Who, um, the doctor is uh, the main character, and he's he or she, they um, are a traveler in time, a traveler in time and space. And the doctor doesn't die; they regenerate into another form. So we started with just this. That's interesting. The doctor regenerates. And then we move out, or ideally, 
the participants move us out into more and more and more abstract questions. So that finally in this particular discussion, and I remember it really well because it was our New Year's Eve party and we, it was just a spontaneous discussion. Um, the question was, what is human consciousness and what is its relationship to um, time and space, to the rest of the cosmos? And if you don't know the method, it can seem a little bit chaotic. Like, how did we get here from there? We're way off topic. But actually, it's the kind of thought processes that a person who's genuinely curious about their world and genuinely philosophically curious, that's, that's what the direction that we hope your thinking would go. More and more abstract thinking, more and, and like more and more general thinking about what this world is, who we are, and what our relationship is to everything. One of the really unique things I think about Grey Havens is that the philosophy discussions that you do are community-based as opposed to being conversations that are happening in schools. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it means and what it looks like to do community-based philosophy. Hi, I'm Amelia Richardson-Dress, Minister for Community Faith Formation at UCC Lama, and this is an interview in my podcast series called In Other Words, talking to kids about things that matter. The idea of doing these interviews as podcasts came after a series of parenting workshops several years ago, and from that I realized that many of us as parents are looking for thoughtful conversations about parenting, especially parenting through a progressive Christian lens. In today's interview, I'm talking with Kelly Cowling, Executive Director of Grey Havens YA, about doing philosophy with children. And the reason I think this is a noteworthy conversation is because there aren't enough places in the world that takes children's intellectual questions and their capacity for deep thought seriously. So I hope that this interview gives you some ideas for doing that, as well as just inspiration to keep lifting up the voices of the children around you. Let's dive in. Yeah, most P4C happens in schools. And so we're very lucky, and actually we're not lucky. It was by design. It was sort of by design and sort of by accident because um, our organization organically grew out of a book group where I realized that I was using what I knew about P4C to facilitate discussions, and I decided to teach other people and start a, a program for 6th through 12th graders. But the fact that it's not in school means that we get to um, just to paraphrase the Irish president, Michael Higgins, who's a huge advocate of philosophy in schools. And he also said we need to embed philosophy in public spaces. So we get to meet people where they live and work and celebrate and hang out. But we also get to have kids with us for a really long time. Mm. Um, we have one kid who started with us when she was seven and our pilot group is Grey Havens YA, Grey Havens Young Adult, and her brother is graduating this year and she just said, when I am 11, when I'm going into sixth grade, I get to be in Grey Havens YA. And we've had kids on the waiting list for years and now we have enough programs where they can start earlier. Oh, we get to see them grow and it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, We get really attached though. I bet. <laughs> I bet you do, but that's always, I mean, it's such a powerful thing for, on both sides. And we get to invite our older 
I don't want to say kids because they're not kids, our older young adults into the um, leadership of our organization. You know, if you're going to be a philosophy organization, then you need to have very open conversations about how you do this. And you need to make sure that you engage people from your community of inquiry Mm. in the running of your organization. And this would have been a really great opening question, but it's coming up now as I'm hearing you talk about philosophy and the passion that you have for it. And so I'm wondering what it was for you that brought you to this work. (laughs) You know, it was Star Trek and Doctor Who. When I was a kid, and, you know, everything that I read when I was a kid, um, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little, and my first conscious philosophical thoughts were inspired by... Um, episodes of Star Trek. There's an episode called, I'm going to forget what it's called. I think it's called, Is There in Truth No Beauty? The title is a philosophical question. And there was this ambassador from a world and apparently the species was so ugly that if you looked at them, if a human looked at them, they would go insane. And I just thought, what would that even look like? Like, what does it mean to be ugly? Is it about incoherence of your form? Is it something that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, I'm a kid and I'm thinking these questions because of Star Trek and um, Doctor Who, the doctor travels in a craft, a ship called a TARDIS, which stands for time and relative dimension in space. I'm such a massive geek and it's bigger on the inside. And I just wanted to figure out how that was possible, how something being dimensionally transcendental was possible. And the fact that the doctor regenerates, I thought, well, there must be some part of the doctor that is transcendent Mm -hmm. because it's the same person, but everything else is different. And I'm having these thoughts and not even recognizing that these are philosophical thoughts. Uh, And then I just happened into P4C classes um, where I went to um, school as an an undergrad at Texas Wesleyan University um, with uh, Ron Reed, who ran the analytical teaching department there. And I I didn't want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, What I wanted to do was figure out why school was so terrible for me. I was a good student in grad school, but I, you know, I try to always tell my kids, especially the kids I work with at alternative schools, you know, I graduated with in, in the bottom 5% of my class. And I had a lot of the same diagnoses that you have. Um, but I thought philosophically, and I just feel like that carried me through a really, really hard childhood and a really hard youth. And that it, it just is so fundamental to who I am. And I wanted to make sure that as many people as possible know that they're philosophers, mm-hmm. that they don't need credentials to think of themselves as philosophers, as lovers of wisdom, as questioners. But I love that it was cultural things that got you interested in the first place. And pop culture, things that people didn't take seriously. I mean, now pop culture studies are sort of gaining ground. And people don't take picture books seriously. I love your book, The Mystery of Easter, because we were talking before we started recording that it really takes the spiritual lives of children seriously. You know, another influence in philosophy for children was Robert Coles, who would just wander around with 
paper and crayons and interview children and you wrote the spiritual lives of children and the political lives of children and um, they have them that's so important it's so important not to shy away from their questions yeah I think picture books are one of my favorite things to you with people of all ages and yes part of that is because people don't take it seriously Mm -hmm. and it's like it becomes an entryway differently because they're willing to play with it. Yes. And and there's not this sense that it's it has to be looked at the right way. Um, so that's an upside to how we don't take it seriously enough. <laughs> and, you know, you asked me earlier about um, choosing text. And one of the things that we talk about in when we teach people to choose texts, and sometimes, you know, the community chooses a text, um, but we talk about poignancy and what we call the, you know, the poignant moment. So those those moments and or maybe it's something in an illustration in a children's book. Maybe it's the words um, that just pierce you, that just make you think like, that's that's so true. I don't know why that's true, but it just seems so true to me. And then when you can start to unpack that together, it's really powerful because you've already done philosophy the minute that you let it reach you. But you can, you can you know, practice um, more and more refined and more and more quality thinking as you do it out loud with other people in a community of inquiry. Picture books are great for that. Yeah. They're great for that. But yeah, I agree. I think they do so well. And, and so many of the, like you said, it's gaining ground as people are recognizing some mm-hmm. of these cultural things that end up having so much depth. And, you know, we also um, really unashamedly borrow from contemplative reading practices, Mm. um, not just in the Christian tradition, but Lexio Divina and um, Florilegium, but there are almost parallel practices in Judaism and um, Havruta, which is just getting together two or more people, I think it's two or more people, um, to to take an in-depth look at a text or there's Buddhist lojong practice where you take these certain slogans and uh, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but um, and you just live with them and you use them sort of as your lens to look at the world. And we invite people to do that with something that, um, that reaches them in the text. Have you ever, if you've ever listened to the podcast, Harry Potter and the sacred text, they do contemplative reading practices with Harry Potter. And they always talk about the sparklets Mm -hmm. and that's their version of our poignant moment. It can be a word, it, you know, that, or like just like part of a subtle detail Mm -hmm. in an image. We love working with graphic novels in addition to picture books that just calls out to you. And, and sparks your curiosity and sparks your empathy and and gets you thinking, but not just thinking, feeling and feeling deeply. I have listened to that podcast and I did not remember that phrase around the sparklets, but... Isn't I, that great? Isn't I love that. <laughs> I think you were the one who introduced me to the practice of Florilegium. Mm-hmm. So will you describe that practice? Sure. I actually... So um, full disclosure... I have a master's in religious studies from Naropa University where contemplative practice is just um, part of everything that they do. So I was familiar with Lexio Divina. I was familiar with other sort of sacred reading practices, but it was Harry Potter and the sacred text that introduced me to um, Florilegia. So 
Florilegia is plural. Um, florilegium is singular, and um, it means a gathering of flowers. And so Florilegium can literally be a book about flowers or a book with flowers in it. Um, but one of our kids um, calls them word flowers. And it's when you collect those sparklets or the word flowers or the poignant moments and you, you um, record them. We give people notebooks and in it and uh, in your Florilegium and that becomes a, a, a text on its own. And we'll do at our contemplative reading, in our contemplative reading group, we'll do a communal florilegium where people are just calling out the, the words and the lines and, and the phrases from um, poetry or whatever we're reading. Um, and we write them down and we write them down in different colors and we read them backwards or we read all the words that are in red or all the words that are in blue. And it always makes this amazing text. And sort of implicit in that is this, concept that you can either take um, literally or figuratively that words are the building blocks of the cosmos and that you can, when you're moving them around, you're bringing something new into your consciousness and into being, um, which sounds very esoteric, and it is, but it, it's really related to um, how we do P for C. And because um, the other... Um, one of the other traditional things that I think comes out of the um, Institute for the Advancement of Philosophy for Children, which is the organization that Matthew Lippman founded, um, is the three C's. And um, that's the idea that a good philosophical question should be um, common, which means that it's in language that everyone can understand. It should be contestable, which is self-explanatory. You know, you're able to disagree on it about it, and it should be um, central, which means that it's central to your concerns. And so whatever it is that reaches you in the text that, that we're using, that's what we want to talk about. Because philosophy should be central. It should be practical. It should be something that's part of your life and part of how you decide how you want to live and what kind of person you want to be and how you want to be in relationship with others and the world, how you want to practice business, um, how you want to uh, approach everything. Yeah. I think when you said that, um, it reminded me, even the way I learned philosophy in high school was dry and boring, and I <laughs> hated it. But I loved the way that we did God talk, you know, theology mm -hmm. at church. And, and it's that, it was that distinction. If people had been doing philosophy with that kind of passion as opposed to, and this is what so-and-so said, or even starting with questions that I'm sure were meant to be intriguing, but they weren't central to who I was, or maybe even I suspect to who most of the class was, <laughs> you know, at that time, it, it could have been different. Um, so that was so interesting to hear you say that. And I know that that happens in reverse too. I know that people find things in philosophical conversations mm -hmm. that they are not finding in faith communities. I love that it's happening wherever it happens. Either one can be a community of inquiry, yes. a healthy community of inquiry. And, you know, it was um, it was really iffy whether or not I would have ended up in, in college at all. Um, you know, I ended up where I ended up because my sister went there, and it was already, I think, June after I graduated from high school. And she drove me down there and got me enrolled. And um, they didn't have a philosophy major. They had the analytical teaching department, 
um, and they had philosophy classes, and I was really torn um, about whether or not I wanted to continue there as an English major or transfer and become a philosophy major. Um, but when I took my first philosophy classes, I was interested on, in, on one hand. I don't want to say that there's no value in that, but I was also a little bit devastated mm -hmm. because it bore no resemblance to the philosophy that I was doing at the coffee shop right. <laughs> or, uh, you know, on my own watching Doctor Who. And I was just so eager to, to talk about philosophical ideas. But where I found that was as an English major in um, the like sensitive analysis of, of novels and poetry. And I think that's a philosophical activity. For people doing who are parents or grandparents or have kids that they love, what are practices that, how do we bring this kind of work home? Um, first of all is let go of the idea that you're supposed to have the answers. So be philosophically self-effacing. Um, listen to your kids and the things that they're curious about. Um, you know, watch things with them, read things with them. Um, but do it out loud, do it in a lively way, talk about it, talk about it in the car, talk about it at dinner, talk about it when you're, you know, braiding their hair or whatever. Um, and, and just just be open, um, just be open to those kinds of questions, but also help them, try to help them to get at what they're really asking. So you want to master phrases like, it sounds to me like what you're saying is, or say more about that, or that's really interesting. Why do you ask that? Or hmm, do you think there's like another question that we should answer first to help us understand this question? Um, and, you know, there's also um, a wonderful book by Jana Morlone called The Philosophical Child. Um, it's a quick read. It's very practical. It has philosophical questions by branches of philosophy. Mm. Um, very practical advice. So I suggest, I recommend that. You could um, come to one of our family philosophy workshops where you can bring your kids and we teach you how to have philosophical conversations with your children. Um, you can just get in touch with us and we'll set that up in your neighborhood, a community group, place of worship, work, wherever school. Um, so that's a plug for us. But, you know, without training, it really is just about being open to the questions that kids are asking anyway, and taking them seriously. It can seem cute, it can seem precocious, mm -hmm. but they're legitimately trying to figure out the world and um, to develop their sense of themselves, their sense of personhood. And when we don't take those questions seriously, that's when we get young adults and adults who think that they need permission to think philosophically or think that there's no point in, in thinking about these questions because we're never going to answer them or thinking that they have to defer to an expert or somebody with credentials. Thank you so much for talking with me today and thank you to all of you who are listening. Uh, if you would like to find more of the episodes in this podcast, you can find them on the UCC Longmont website, which is ucclongmont.org. Then go to the Faith and Families tab and from there down to podcast. I release these in sort of a mini series sort of fashion. They come out um, as I have the time to put them together. I love to do them and am so grateful for this 
media that allows us to do them as we can and then to have them be available always. So be sure to check on there and see about the other episodes that there are. There's topics ranging from talking to kids about race to uh, helping kids process after a school lockdown, a school lockdown drill, helping kids thrive academically, and we have several more exciting ones coming up in the next few weeks. So thanks for listening.